the same habits that make students illiberal, that make them oppose freedom of speech, are the same mental habits that make people anxious and depressed. Hello and welcome to Trigonometry. I'm Francis Foster. I'm Constantine Kissinger. And this is a show for you if you want honest conversations with fascinating people. Our brilliant guest today is the president of FIRE, the Foundation for Individual Rights and Education, and the co-author of The Coddling of the American Mind, Greg Lukanoff. Welcome to Trigonometry. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's a great pleasure to have you on the show. I've given you the full introduction there, but tell us a little bit about the story behind that. How are you? Who are you? How are you where you are? What has been your journey through life that leads you to be sitting here talking to us? Oh, wow. Okay. So we were talking a little bit before the camera started rolling about my family history. Um, I'm a first-generation American. My father is Russian by way of Yugoslavia, and my mother is Irish by way of England. Um, and because of the peculiarities of each, each culture, my ethnically Irish mother thinks of herself as British and my ethnically Russian father thinks of himself as Russian because you don't just wake up one morning and decide you're Serbian. Like that's just not the way identity works um, in, in that part of the world. Um, so I, I grew up, uh, you know, we, we were pretty uh, broke slash poor when I, when I was a kid. Um, I grew up in a neighborhood with lots of other kids um, from, you know, Peru, from Vietnam, from Korea, from the Dominican Republic, from Puerto Rico. Um, and the, the, the white kids in my neighborhood were actually from the American South, which is a first generation American seemed even stranger and more exotic uh, to me. Um, and so I had the sort of first generation um, American slash immigrant kind of appreciation for American freedom of speech, because we know how uh, <laughs> how rare that is historically and, and how unusual America's commitment to, to, to that is um, both historically and, and in the world, uh, particularly at the moment. Um, so I went to undergrad, um, which was kind of a surprise. I wasn't really totally sure I was going to go to uh, college at all. I, I studied um, uh, journalism and international relations, thinking I would, you know, do something, follow my father's footsteps, who speaks seven languages. Um, but as a journalism um, a double major, I got to see, you know, with my own eyes, how people will come into your office all the time. Uh, will come into the newspaper, the student newspaper office, and demand that the you, the editor, fire somebody because of what they published or with, withdraw that article. And it really started to become clear to me that like people are natural born censors. Like they want to figure out a way to punish you for saying that article. And they're still rationalizing that they completely believe in freedom of speech, but the wheels start turning. Um, and they're like, I think you should punish this person for what's the magic word at the moment. I felt threatened. I felt intimidated. I felt harassed. Um, and, and finally the, the final link of the chain for free speech was the Communications Decency Act was passed um, in 1995. Um, and this was the old version of it that actually tried to ban indecency, that, that's the word of it, on the internet uh, back in 1995. And that's laughably unconstitutional under the American First Amendment. Um, and that's what made me decide to go to law school. I went to uh, Stanford for law school. I took every class that they, they offered on, on First Amendment when I ran out, I did six credits on censorship during the Tudor dynasty um, because it was, this was like my lifelong passion. Um, and everybody thought I was a little nuts for hyper focusing on this thing that there weren't many jobs in. But my superpower is when fire found me uh, out in San Francisco, you know, paying offering me fifty thousand dollars a year. You know, given my life history, it was kind of like, wow, this is amazing! Like, <laughs> this is a huge amount of money for for graduate. Um, and so I worked there, you know, from, I was the legal director from 2001 to 2005. I became the president in 2005 and originally interim and then became president in 2006. Um, and then I was lucky enough to have a complete mental breakdown because the culture war was so incredibly depressing and so alienating and so difficult to fight all the time. The good news is about that suicidal depression is it led me to start doing, um, cognitive behavioral therapy, uh, which, uh, created the basis for my uh, my work with Jonathan Haidt, my, my good friend, um, lo lovely person, by the way. Um, uh, I, I wrote an article with him in 2015 called Coddling the American Mind. By the way, a title I have never liked and, and, have, <laughs> and have fought pretty much at, at every stage because I think it alienates the very people who need to read it. So we did the article um, at, in 2015 about like how the same habits that make students illiberal, that make them oppose freedom of speech, are the same mental habits that make people anxious and depressed. And so we wrote this in the summer of 2015, and we fixed the whole thing. 
<laughs> it, well, quite. I mean, you, you, it's a it's a very funny joke, but I, that was actually the question that I was going going to go to because as I said to you before we started, myself, Francis, our whole team, we were all incredibly uh, impressed and persuaded and informed and interested in what you and Jonathan wrote uh, in the coddling of the American mind. Uh, how do you see some of those dynamics that you've mentioned playing out in recent years, particularly in the last few years? Where are we oh, with man. that culture war that, that gave you the breakdown in the first place? Yeah. Is it um, time for another one is what I'm asking? Oh, yeah. I, uh, believe me, don't, don't, don't encourage me. I've been feeling a little bit that way lately. Um, the, uh, just you know, for, for your listeners, I, I, it, one of the reasons why I'm such a proponent of cognitive behavioral therapy is I used to struggle with depression pretty severely as I got older, pretty much every year. And, you know, with, with the help of, I'm, I'm lightly medicated, but so no, nothing against medicine. Um, but the big difference was CBT. And eventually, you know, the depressive voices in your head just don't sound as convincing anymore, which it takes a long time. It takes a lot of work, but, but it really does happen. Anyway, so 2015 happened. Um, there was a summer in 2015. And little did we know that the fall of 2015 would be a terrible, uh, a terrible year. That's when I, um, I was the one who videotaped the, the students surrounding my friend Nicholas Christakis at Yale, you know, telling him that he was horrible because his wife wrote something saying that should we really be policing the Halloween costume choices of the students? And this happened all that there were there were about 100 of these kind of incidents where it was something relatively minor. And then next thing you knew, activists were demanding that for example, at UMass Amherst, um, that the student newspaper uh, stopped being funded, you know, that Mary Spellman at Claremont McKenna get fired, for example. So 2015 was pretty bad. Um, and 2017, even scarier. That, that's when you had the Berkeley riots. That's when you had um, uh, you had the assault on Allison Stanger protecting Charles Murray at Middlebury. So 2017 was really bad. Um, and that's one of the reasons why we decided to write the book, Coddling the American Mind, which came out in 2018. And we were hoping that it was as bad as it was going to get, but we had a feeling it was going to get worse. We didn't know how much worse and how soon, because 2020 was, without exception, the worst year for freedom of speech uh, and academic freedom I have seen in my entire career. The second worst year, 2021. Um, and it, so it's been a very disheartening um, couple of years. I, I, it's kind of funny because there are still people who will talk about like cancel culture isn't real. And it's like, and, and literally, like after the New York Times finally you know, wrote an editorial saying, well, actually, everything indicates it's real, including our own polling. And, you know, people on Twitter, it blew their minds. They, they completely freaked out, including people saying, give me one example of someone being canceled. <laughs> and it's like, I have a database and this is just professors of now we're getting close to 600 professors who were targeted for, for being canceled since 2015. About two thirds of them happened just since 2020. Um, about one fifth of them were fired about uh, also about, you know, about three fifths of them were punished in some way, um, whether that's, you know, loss of position or, or whatever. This includes 30 tenured professors who were fired for their for their expression or for their pedagogy or for their research. That's the only reason why tenure exists. I mean, generally, like tenured professors could have been fired in the past when I first started my career. But that was for like murdering somebody or like not, or not showing up to class or just like genuinely like leaving the country, doing something illegal or just failing to do your job entirely. Um, them being fired for um, for their uh, point of view, for, for, for their expression. That's the whole reason why tenure exists in, in the first place. So and that's just professors. Uh, the, the number of students um, who, who get in trouble is many times that. And we're and that's harder to dig up because when a student gets expelled, that doesn't make the, the student newspaper, for example. Um, so uh, it has been the worst couple of years of my career. And my big fear is that just the same way you had sort of like the political correctness thing of the late 80s um, and, and early 90s, uh, that kind of passed after a while, after the speech codes were defeated in court, after comedians started making fun of it, it kind of fell out of fashion. And people kind of went, oof, thank God that's over. But then from 1995 to 2015, things just got worse, just more quietly with less attention. And I, what, and I can feel that there's a little bit of a sense that people are returning to their sanity on, on some of this stuff. But if we don't, but if we just go, oh, thank goodness that's over again, the next time the pendulum swings, which will be sooner, it's going to be even worse still. 
So, Greg, thank you for making me depressed now. <laughs> I'm here we to can help. get you some CBT, <laughs> mate. Don't yeah. worry about it. But, Greg, in your book, there were lots of, you pointed out lots of reasons why this was the case. Yep. Which do you think are the most important ones why we find ourselves in this position now? You know, my two are, are the two we started with um, in, in the uh, we talk about seven causal threads in coddling the American mind, because, of course, we do You know, we have to make it as complicated as possible. Actually, sorry, we talk about six, but we added a seventh later. But the two most important ones to me are um, social media is what sped these th these trends up. Um, a lot of these things were existed already, um, you know, like the um, the sort of. What, what what's the best word for it? Like revivication of um of uh, ad hominem arguments. Uh, that essentially the the idea that you would focus on the person, not the argument they're making, was something that at minimum college was supposed to be teaching people to. You know that actually that's kind of disfavored. But the, just because someone's horrible doesn't mean they're wrong, and just because someone's a saint doesn't mean they're right. This is just logical. This is just also true. Um. So. I think when social media came along, it came at a confluence of uh, higher ed, you know, adopting these uh, one kind of giving up to a, to a surprising degree on on the on the rules of argumentation, but also on, on the even more pernicious side, uh, K through twelve and college teaching that ad hominem arguments are essentially good. That, that that essentially yes, you know, like this is a this is a life is a battle between good people and evil people is what we called our third great untruth. I'm in the book. Basically, the untruths are the idea of it's as if we're giving the words the world's worst possible advice to a generation of students. And we call that the great untruth of polarization. So I do think that that um, the confluence of social media, um, a bunch of bad things are happening in K through 12, a bunch of bad things are happening in higher ed added to polarization. And by, by that, I also mean the, um, the big sort theory, um, which is, you know, also plays out that literally Americans of different um, who vote for different candidates and who come from economic, uh, different economic classes don't even interact with that, that with, with, with each other all that much anymore. So I think that this it's very easy to start seeing people who disagree with you um, as evil um, if you don't know any of those any of those people to think that they're stupid or evil, which is one of the reasons why lack of viewpoint diversity on campus was a much more serious problem than people understood going back to the 80s. Because it's when you have this kind of situation where, you know, basically you have a coherent moral community of, of overwhelmingly people who are who, who are more left leaning, uh, the dynamics around your appreciation for free speech shifts because free speech is the argument of uh, so I always have to and, uh, forgive me if I'm going on too long, but talking about um, uh, the rich and the powerful have always been fine historically with, with a couple exceptions, of course. Um, but uh, in a democracy, if you have 50 percent or more, uh, you you get to make the rules. And it really the only people who benefit from a separate idea of the of free speech or for that matter, the First Amendment under the uh, under those circumstances are people who are in minority point of view or who have unpopular beliefs with, 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 with elites. When you go from being, you know, uh, roughly two to one conservative to, to uh, uh, liberal to conservative um, on, on campus to five to one or 30 to one in some departments with, with, with a overwhelming majority when it comes to administrators, more like 95, you know, 95%. Um, it's predictable that you start seeing free speech as not something that's your ally. You start seeing it as something that of more of, a, of, of an inconvenience. I, I still can't get my head around why people would think that free speech is more of an inconvenience. How have we got to this point where we take something so fundamental to our society and treat it so frivolously? I, I think it's, it, it, to a degree, it's regression to the mean. Um, that uh, that essentially most of human history is about um, censorship, you know, that, that essentially the censors generally won. Uh, there's a reason why I call my blog the eternally radical idea, uh, because the idea that everyone's entitled to their opinion and that the fact of that opinion, um, their, their right to hold that opinion is, is absolutely their right, um, even if you think they might be wrong. Um, is a very radical idea. Uh, and you know this because in every generation, people stand up to oppose it. Um, we, we like to always point out these freedom fighters in history, and it's like, well, who were they fighting against? Um, and it's most of human history. 
that the other side, the forces of conformity, the forces of authority, the forces of groupthink, the forces of religion, all, all of these things, um, they all conspire against freedom of speech. And so freedom of speech has to be taught. It has to be valued. And, and one of the ways you see what a culture values is in their idioms, um, like the little sayings that they have that, that pepper their speech. And so growing up in, in, in the U.S., you always heard it's a free country. Everyone's entitled to their own opinion, to each his own or, or, or her own, walk a mile in a man's shoes. And for that matter, even none of your business. You know, um, these were all these are all kind of ideas that uh, undergird a democratic society. Um, but those have increasingly fallen away. Um, and I think it's in no small part because we disproportionately, and I think to a degree that is unhealthy, we, we rely in the United States on a, a ruling class that sound very Marxist about it that comes overwhelmingly from a, hand through, a handful of colleges. I know partially because I went to one of them. Um, and, it, and when you actually start having, you know, a, um, a, a democracy, you know, choosing its leaders only from a relatively narrow, you know, batch of schools that already see free speech as an impediment to their agenda, you shouldn't be surprised that this starts um, coming down, uh, it's starting to seem like what most Americans think. Now, on polling, this is absolutely not what most Americans think. But uh, if your impression of what the country looks like is Twitter, which, you know, the 2% of the 2% dominate, um, then, yeah, I mean, it, it can really start to feel that free speech is this, this Neanderthal idea and we're finally coming around to enlightened censorship. And I always have to be the person reminding them that, Enlightened censorship or people who think they're engaging lightning <laughs> is the rule of human history, not the exception. Mm. And, and the thing that really blew my mind was from a couple of months ago where the U.S. government were advocating censorship of podcasts, in particular Joe Rogan. Yeah. And, I, and, I'm, and I was watching that going, is this really America? Is this really the land of the free? Is this really what I, I would associate with America? No. Yeah. Well, the whole disinformation thing is, um, I get it. I, I understand how it, it, that disinformation can be used by your enemies. It can be used by malicious people. It can be used by snake oil salesmen um, to profit or to disrupt or, 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 or whatever. But it is, it, the reason why it's so hard to fight is because the other option is omniscience, <laughs> you know, like, like that essentially we that's one of the reasons why free speech works so well is because in the grand scheme of things, we're all incredibly self-deluded animals. Like we, 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 do, we, we are very bad at guessing what the truth is. We're very bad at knowing um, if, if the person talking talking to us is a liar. We're overconfident in our current beliefs. We're overconfident that our age has all of the moral questions uh, settled. Um, and uh, free speech is this constant recognition of, of epistemic humility, that in the grand scheme of things, we don't, we don't know all that much stuff. So when it, it's amazing to me when people point out, yeah, disinformation is a problem, and it's one that has to be combated. But the way you combat it is by having experts that people generally trust um, talking about these things and treating people like adults. When you start having a situation where people think that higher education, journalism, experts in general are biased in some way um, and that that trust starts to be undermined. That's a very dangerous thing uh, for, for a democratic society. I also think, by the way, social media makes that process inevitable and we have to figure out how to live uh, with that disruption. But you can censor by going after disinformation. You, you can uh, you, by claiming to go after disinformation, you can censor practically everybody. Do you have a website or do you plan to have a website? Because if you do, then EasyDNS is the company for you. EasyDNS is the perfect domain name registrar provider and web host for you. They have a track record of standing up for their clients, whether it be cancel culture, de-platform attacks, or overzealous government agencies. He knows about that. So will you in a second. <laughs> EasyDNS have rock solid network infrastructure and fantastic customer support. They're in your corner, no matter what the world throws at you unless it's your ex-girlfriend, in which case you're on your own. You know about that. <laughs> Move your domains and websites over to EasyDNS right now 
all you've got to do is go to easydns.com forward slash triggered. That's easydns.com forward slash triggered. Use our promo code, which is also triggered, and get 50% off the initial purchase. Sign up for their newsletter, Access of Easy, which tells you everything you need to know about technology, privacy, and censorship. And Greg, just, I'm really glad you bring up the point about social media from that perspective, because God knows I'm on your side and I agree with you and free speech is great. And, you know, the, one of the points that we've explored extensively here on trigonometry from the beginning is how important it is. And with, you know, both of our backgrounds, we understand its value. But in the context of Elon Musk's attempted purchase of Twitter recently, Mm -hmm. uh, there was a thread, I don't know if you saw it, from a guy called Yishang Wong, I think is is his name. He's a, he used to run Reddit. And one of the th points that he made is he was like, look, guys, I was there in the early days of the internet. I'm all for free speech. But the internet we have now, which is dominated by social media, any large network of communication will, will not be able to provide the free speech, quote unquote, that we all want. Because uh, in the end, large numbers of people arguing about stuff, whether that's baking cookies or whether that's politics, results in tribalism, results in confrontation, yeah. results in bias, results in people trying to censor each other and all of that. And eventually the network has to step in, not because they are trying to lock down our ability to speak, but because some of the behavior yeah. that is being exhibited in the real world as a result of, of that, that speech is harmful. Yeah. Now, I am very much, just, just to finish this, someone who leans even to the into the point like, look, some speech is harmful, but it's still better for people to be able to speak. But what do you say broadly to this idea that we live in a social media world in which censorship is inevitable and actual free speech in the way that you'd think about it 200 years ago uh, at the founding of the United States is just not possible anymore? Yeah, I, I would think that um, the person making that argument doesn't understand how sophisticated, for example, First Amendment jurisprudence is. Um, I, I, I describe American First Amendment jurisprudence, you know, about as about 100 years of the best and brightest people in the United States figuring out how you have freedom of speech in the real world, um, you know, warts and all, how, and how you try to minimize some of the consequences, how you actually draw it. And, and that's one of the reasons why when Elon Musk was talking about this, I took it as an opportunity to write an open letter, you know, to Elon Musk saying, hey, it, you know, actually, why don't you try to um, uh, peg your norms towards an existing body of, of, of thought that actually is very practical? Um, and, uh, and one of the things that I, you know, so I, I think, um, what was it? What was the name of the one that got shut down? Parler. Uh, Parler, yeah. Mm. Parler. And Parler, when it got shut down, I didn't know enough about the site to have a strong opinion on it. But the accusation was that people were conspiring to commit actual crimes. And of course, that's not protected. Um, uh, threats of bodily harm or death are not protected. Um, I mean, one of the things that immediately um, required some amount of moderation uh, on the Internet, you know, going back to its earliest days, is spam. You know, people just, they'd be spammed to death if there wasn't some amount of moderation. But I do think that there are sensible principles that you can draw from it, um, which are like that nobody should be punished simply for expressing their opinion. That, that essentially you can't have viewpoint discrimination on a topic. Um, when you have a social media a, a social media platform, you can have general parameters. You can even, it, it's even acceptable within, within First Amendment norms, which is, of course, very strong that you could have um, what would be a called a limited public forum. Like on this one, we're just talking about Buffy the Vampire Slayer, you know, uh, uh, for, for example. Uh, I think that um, it's not as hard as people think to do some of this. You know, you know, not punishing people on the basis of viewpoint is a good start. Um, you can have viewpoint neutral rules um, in place anyway. But the thing that I wanted to sort of raise the discussion a little bit in, in, um, in talking to Elon, you know, with the idea of Elon Musk taking this over is uh, just to, to, to go back to someone who's influ influenced my thought a lot since Codling came out um, at uh, uh, Martin Gurry. He wrote a book called Revolt of the Public. Um, and my way of interpreting what he's saying is that social media uh, proved itself capable of tearing down any person, any institution or any idea. 
And this is actually not the worst thing in some cases. I mean, Hosni Mubarak in Egypt, it's good, you know, that, that he got torn down. There are lots of regimes that needed to be torn down. There needed to be more light shined on abusive police practices in the U.S., for, uh, for example. But it's utterly incapable of building at this point. That essentially, if you want to tear something down, social media is great. If you want to actually build something constructive, it will not help you. It'll probably actually uh, completely sabotage that. But we shouldn't give up on the idea that we can get something much more productive um, for the production. And, and this is where I'm going to sound very pie in the sky. Production of human knowledge from social media. Why? Because the great institution of disconfirmation, you know, which is either the Republic of Letters or what higher education is supposed to be, um, is all about disconfirmation. Um, just disconfirmation within some rules that ad hominems don't count. Like, again, like I said, you can be you can be right and be a horrible person. Um, and so I do think that if you could think of a way to use social media that rather than um, completely banking on the uh, on the outrage machine, um, tried to actually use it to, you know, more thoughtful, um, uh, more well-structured arguments uh, actually get more uh, more discussion there. I, I believe that there's a way to do it, that we could have it go from something that is just snarky gossip to something that might actually have a positive benefit on the species? Well, you're right. That does sound pie mm -hmm. in the sky. Um, <laughs> yeah. but, but, but look, let, as I say, I'm playing devil's advocate and I'm fully on, on the, your side of the argument. Oh, sure, yeah, but, yeah, yeah. but at the same time, you know, the argument, for example, like, look, take the Hunter Biden story that was yeah. suppressed by, the, the, by uh, social media and take the banning of Donald Trump from Twitter. Look, yeah. my take on that is that, to me, those two events are essentially... They are, I don't want to sound extreme, but to me, that was the end of democracy in a way. If you mm -hmm. can't get accurate information and if you can ban the sitting president of the United States from speaking on, on the biggest public platform that there is, yeah, you know, you've ended our ability to make decisions independently based on the information that we want to seek out. However, the argument would be from the people who are involved in that censorship is, well, that is a point where free speech causes real-world harm mm -hmm. and it becomes equivalent of screaming fire in a theater. Now, given now, I don't agree with that point, even with January the 6th and all of that, but there the could have been the interpretation, certainly from the social media companies, that that is what was happening. Their platforms were being used to organize, I mean, they call it an insurrection, call it whatever you want, a mm -hmm. large-scale riot in the heart of the world's greatest democracy right oh, I, I live on capitol hill by the way so like right they're, they're, so we were so in the green isn't, zone isn't that inevitably where we're always going to end up it's always going to be at that extreme where yeah you can have your free speech and use the network responsibly but at the end of the day when push comes to shove when it's crunch time someone mm -hmm. is going to get on twitter and go this election was bs let's all get to x place and start y action yeah. I mean, I, I think that these are there are going to be, you know, misfires and mistakes inevitably in any system um, you impose. But there's there's a difference between trying to maximize freedom of speech and freedom of opinion um, and giving up on the whole thing because the system fails sometimes. And when it comes to the Hunter Biden thing, um, you know, I am somewhat with my my friend John Roush, like like the idea of being a little bit spooked about the idea of there being, you know, Russian disinformation about this sounding because it sounded fishy, frankly, like, like the, the idea of like they found a laptop at a, at a company like suddenly right around the time of the election. Um, still, I think uh, Twitter made absolutely the wrong call, um, but I'm not saying it's as crazy uh, as it sounds under the under the circumstances. And when it comes to, um, you know, January 6th, the, the, the standard in the law is, is, is the incitement standard under Brandenburg. There are First Amendment lawyers, you know, saying this may not be exactly Brandenburg, but it's damn close. And there are other people like David French who actually thought it thought it crossed the line, for example, into even a violation of, of First Amendment standards. So I, I think that the some of these issues are not necessarily as hard as they sound, Um and they don't de devalue the entire system. Well, so, hold on. You know, you're, Greg, what you're saying to me sounds even harder than what I thought it was because mm -hmm. you can have your lawyers adjudicating on it for years to come, but that decision has to be made in the moment yeah. by Twitter. So what was the right decision in that situation, in your opinion? I try to be nonpartisan um, uh, it, it, in uh in my take on it, but I am a Democrat, um, you know, which I, I explained to the genuine horror of Trump people. Um, they're so 
nasty. I mean, honestly, like I think under the circumstances, saying that it was close enough to incitement, not necessarily the legal standard, that they they could say he shouldn't be included. And I know I'm going to get a lot of hate mail for that. So thanks. Well, probably so, <laughs> but but that's why we bring people on because we yep. want to hear what they actually think. What about Hunter Biden? Yeah. I mean, well, that, that, this that, is where the that, problem is, Greg. But let me just make this point quickly. Sure. The problem I have with all of this is yep. you can have your brilliant standards and you can go, look, a pre- sitting president shouldn't be able to incite people to go and, and protest about something that is likely to spill over. Okay, let's say I agree with you. The problem yep. is something like the Hunter Biden story. Do you think if Donald Trump Jr. had handed his laptop oh, no. into some repair shop <laughs> and it turned out there was whatever, I don't want to get you know sued for libel, but some kind of porn, some kind of evidence of drug taking, some kind of evidence of corruption. Do you think Twitter would have suppressed that story from being shared? Absolutely not. And, and, that's, right. and that's the reason that's why- That's the I problem. And, and, and to be clear, for Hunter Biden, that was a mistake, in my opinion. I, I'm just okay. making the point that it's not, um, that that was a bad call and it was wrong and I protested at the time and, and, and okay. I still do. Um, the, uh, the, my only point with the John Roush point was that it might not be as arbitrary as, as, as it might've seen at the time. Cause like I said, it sounded, it sounded kind of fishy. I would hope that any journalist hearing a, an implausible sounding backstory would be kind of like, eh, is that, is that really true? But nonetheless, what they did, the, the laptop thing was a mistake that they should be embarrassed and ashamed of. Greg. Isn't the problem that what we've got is of these companies, which are huge conglomerates they're privately owned and as a result they're going to do like all corporations do and act in their own Mm self-interest and that being the case they cannot be trusted with these hugely powerful tools and be the ones in charge of disseminating information to the public yeah let's give it to the government yeah Yeah, exactly that's my answer to that is that essentially people think that, and th- and this is one of the funny things, like as far as like a, a, I'm not f- like a full libertarian, but I'm definitely a civil libertarian, but the most useful contribution, like the term that I borrow from, from libertarianism, um, and I just added naive to it, which is naive statism, that essentially the fix to everything is just handed over to the government and they will do it way, way better. I, and, I, and I'd really rather have something you know, driven by the profit motive um, than by driven by pure political calculation. Unfortunately, by having a lack of viewpoint diversity in Silicon Valley, you end up with situations where there wasn't someone, you know, at Twitter to be like, whoa, 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 um, we're, we're we're taking away the New York freaking posts, um, t- uh, Twitter access for like a couple of days over a story that might be true. Um, it, so I do think that, that, that the uh, existing Silicon Valley um, has a major problem in that it has, doesn't have sufficient viewpoint diversity among itself. Still, I, uh, when it comes to a lot of the solutions, I find the solutions worth, uh, worth, uh, worse than the disease. I, I think people would be scared. Like, so I always found it really kind of like jaw-dropping that Republicans were always talking about how, you know, uh, and Trump in particular was talking about dropping uh, the existing version of Section 230, um, which uh, which protects um, uh, social media giants from from, from liability in, in a number of cases, because if they weren't protected from that, the very first people they would drop would be overwhelmingly conservatives. Now, to be clear, I don't think there is a perfect solution to uh, to any of this. I do occasionally think that sometimes the the companies, as much uh, as maligned as they are, made some actually pretty good calls. I, I was re- originally very skeptical of the Facebook, um, uh, like a overseer board thing, uh, because I assumed what would happen is they would, since they were trying to make it international, that it would turn into the convoy system, and the least speech protective person in in the board would actually be. Um, the one who you know decides, but setting up an outside body um, was uh, was was actually a, a pretty good call. So I think that there are ways to navigate it. And what I'm more scared of is that people are going to think that, well, you know, the whole problem is social media um, is, is corrupt. So therefore, we're going to come up with a solution that actually ends up throwing out the baby with the bathwater. But 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 let's talk about power, Greg, because sure. power is at the root of all this, and that these companies are so powerful. They can effectively do what they want, even if it means silencing the president of the United States, even if it means influencing elections, and nothing happens to them. Mm -hmm. You know, like you said, Hunter Biden was a bad call. And I know we're coming off as massive Trumpers here, which we're actually not. We're just exploring the, the edge of the argument, right? It's like 
Hunter Biden was an awful decision, in my opinion. Just atrocious. Okay. Yep. But where's where's the you know where's the pushback? Where, where's the punishment? This is this, to me that's a really serious crime. Because if I was running that company, I'll be honest, with you, I'd be like, oh hey, we may have changed the course of an election. Nothing happened. Mm-hmm. You know. Oh look at this magic ring I'm wearing now. So I, 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 and I, I understand this, but my point is not that they don't do things wrong and that there are abuses that can be um, uh, better handled. But like, what, what is the solution then? Like, because mo- most of what I'm saying, what I've been saying about this is that I'm more afraid of the solution than, than the disease. What do you think would actually fix it? Okay, so w- would you be in favor, for instance, of, again, government entering and breaking it up like they would mm-hmm. do with monopolies? Because it can be argued that these companies are monopolies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've I've heard about that one. Um, I possibly um, when when it comes to uh, you know breaking up um, monopolies, I, I do actually think that trust busting sometimes can sometimes can help. But I know I know a lot of my libertarian friends would say actually it didn't achieve anything. I don't know. Like I, I remember when AT and T you know owned everything, and I definitely feel like there was a big telecom explosion after they were broken up. Um, so maybe yeah. Uh, I think we're probably approaching this the wrong way, Greg. You don't think there is a solution, do you? No. Why? Um, because nothing in life is that simple. Right. Well, that that is something that resonates with me very strongly. Mm-hmm. So, so what do we do then? Because at well, the end of the day, we can you the three of us can sit here and go, there is no solution, but we still have to do something, right? Oh yeah, or yeah. Not I, do anything. I, I think we should experiment. I think we should try a, a variety of different experiments. And this is the way, the way I end up putting it, um, is that a lot of times when people look at like my and Heights take on social media and how we point out all the downsides of it, I actually always tried, tried to like chime in when we were writing saying, by the way, I actually, I have a lovely experience on most of social media. There are positive, there are genuinely uh, positive things about it. But when people hear how critical we are of some aspects of it, and we absolutely are, and I, I still very much am, and particularly the way I think it drives our entire political class kind of insane. Um, I, I think it's actually very unhealthy that so many of the nation's journalists are are, are, are on Twitter. But people will point out, it's like, oh, Haidt and Lukyanov, they probably said the, would say the same thing about the printing press. And I'm always like, you mean the technology that led to a massive increase in the witch trials that led to about 200 years of religious uh, of religious wars in Europe? Like, like the, it, it was the defining disruptive technology. Um, it had over, overall, was it worth it? Yes. Um, was it peaceful? God, no. I mean, it, it was in, incredibly powerful. So what I feel like we're doing right now is we're, it's like, I don't know, 14 98 and we're looking at the at the printing press and saying to ourselves um what's the easy fix that's going to get us out of this situation and the answer is there isn't one um and because that was adding millions of people to the discussion it was probably only adding thousands of people it it, like of additional publishers or tens of thousands additional publishers but making people you know making millions of recipients information now we have a two-way conversation with billions of people that is that is unprecedented in human history there is no way this isn't going to be highly disruptive um there's no way it isn't going to um come with all sorts of new problems um so what i would hope for would be that when we're doing solutions and this is one thing in in terms of like a, a way to think about the way we come up with solutions is uh like they say with medication for uh for um for all sorts of reasons um you know go uh go slow and start low um that essentially try a variety of different fixes give them credit where they actually do seem to be helping i i for example think twitter was helped out a lot by the fact that they doubled the um uh, the character limit, you know, uh, several years ago, I think that actually improved the level of discourse. I live in a in what I consider to be a kind of nice bubble on Twitter, where I follow a lot of my expert friends. We have relatively civil conversations. I so I do think that 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 um, uh, my fear is that the absolute worst of what go- goes on in social media could uh, be used and that could stifle the best of what comes out of social media, which I do think is a real thing. I'm really glad you bring up the printing press because I do think that's a really, really useful uh, analogy here. Um, and But I think underlying both the printing press and social media is something that's very obvious uh, out of all of this, which is that ideas are very powerful things. And so if we're talking about free speech in a world where 
I can tweet something and be part of a thing on social media that starts a civil war somewhere, which is probably where we are already if, if we're not heading there. Um, isn't that, isn't it inevitable that that is, you know, it's just too powerful not to be censored by somebody, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Well, even within um, First Amendment law, it's kind of funny because a, a lot of times people who don't know a lot about uh, American First Amendment law will talk about the great European um, sort of balancing of interests uh, that they try to do, that essentially free speech is just one among multiple different interests um, in, in other bodies of law. I think personally that's why it's a disaster in many of the countries in Europe it, is that they do this ad hoc balancing and free speech is always on the losing side. But believe it or not, American freedom of speech, even in terms of the law, is a balancing act. It's just considered to be a balancing act with a very heavy thumb on the on the scale. And the balancing is called strict scrutiny. Um, I, I, I sometimes and I remember actually kind of horrifying um, a, a friend of mine by not being uh, like uh, she actually did you guys watch the Battlestar Galactica, um, like the one that was on sci fi, the reboot. Yeah. yeah and I love that show. Um, but uh, it's about, you know. A planet of 10 billion people, uh, 50,000 people are left, um, and there's this constant battle about whether or not they maintain democracy on the ship. And I'm kind of like, okay, I will say that, and, and there's there's spaceships following them trying to completely complete the genocide. And I'm like, okay, even American law understands that the rules are a little different when you're like this close to oblivion, when, when you're this close. So I do think that there's a there's a level of sophistication within the law that says you know like for example like the Pentagon Papers um, they talk about the idea of printing the time and place of transport ships being sent out you know um, and that's and at least nominally within the law that's like yeah there are actually levels at which you you can censor even factual information however I I have a hard time thinking of a of a single situation where simply someone's honest expression of opinion would actually end the world. Uh, expression of opinion, yes, but a, uh, the, the difficulty is that a continued expression of a certain opinion over time mm-hmm. is pretty much what led to Trump being taken off Twitter, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Oh, I thought that was specifically what happened on January 6th, though. But, I mean, I think the argument would be that what happened on January 6th is a product of his communication on Twitter over time, you know, calling the election into question and all of that. Isn't, wouldn't that be the argument? So I guess my my point is, all I'm saying, all I'm asking you is, is it not inevitable that social media will be a place where at the end of the day, someone goes, well, we've reached Battlestar Galactica point now. Mm -hmm. Like this is real now. This is real world shit. And if we don't shut this down, someone's going to get hurt or a thousand people are going to get hurt or the country is going to go to to whatever. And so we're always going to end up in a position where we don't actually have freedom of speech online in that way because it's just too powerful now because the multiplication of, you know, me saying something at home uh, to my wife or us chatting here is very different to me saying that very same thing on Twitter. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I I think about times where freedom of speech in the US like uh, uh, took a turn for the worse. And I think of like the... um, the Red Scare, like the the, Den- uh, the Dennis case in 1951. And you know, I always try to give like extra context. It's like, so American spies and British spies gave super Hitler, Stalin, the the H-bomb. Um, and so I always, I always try to put that in there to be kind of like, people had a reason to be spooked. But I still think that the law went in the wrong direction uh, briefly in the 1950s, saying that people who were just members of the Communist Party could be uh, thrown in jail. Um, was that the wrong call? Yes. Did freedom of speech die that day in the United States? No. That's an interesting point. Why don't you think it died that day then? Because it, 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 it because history kept going. Um, because later decisions, they found that uh, they they tried. There was there was an attempt, sort of like to pull to, to um, withdraw from the free speech purism that, that was developing after 1925. Uh, so you had the Boharnais case, for example, that talked about um, that you can't defame people on the basis of race. That was basically like, an, and that was found to be, con- uh, basically an early version of hate speech laws was found to be constitutional 
in the U.S. in the early 1950s. But that n- none of those cases have ever been replicated since. And that the law kept on progressing. We look back with some disappointment or some horror of, about what we did several years ago. But free speech didn't die because we didn't give up on it. Um, and you, and yeah, there are going to there m- mistakes are going to be made. That is inevitable under literally every single system um, that that you develop. But as soon as we do the thing where it's like, well, I guess that didn't work in that case, so let's just give up on free speech entirely, um, that's how you actually turn your sense of doom into a self-fulfilling prophecy of actual doom. Hey, KK, do you like podcasts? No. In Russia, we don't have podcasts. All we need are beautiful and true words of Uncle Vlad to guide us. And how's that working out? Not good, but still more trustworthy than BBC, Sky, CNN, Fox News and MSNBC. Good point. But for those of you who do like a funny and informative podcast, then you've got to check out The Girlfriend Translator. The two co-hosts are women that answer all your questions. Why ask women questions? Uncle Vlad says women are only for... Because it gives men objective advice on the minefield that is dating and relationships in 2022. If you're wondering why she never called you back, why she lost interest, or simply how to become a better partner, then you have to check this show out. She didn't call you back because you're not real men. You don't ride bear or shut off. Okay, mate, uh, but it's not just for men. Ladies, you can listen and find out what makes men tick and an insight into male psychology. There's only one answer to that. (laughs) Plus, it's funny and you get to ask the host questions. If you've ever had a situation in a relationship that has left you feeling confused and want an impartial point of view, then you need to check out The Girlfriend Translator. Check out Girlfriend Translator wherever you get your podcast. I've never listened to it because it is appropriately banned in Russia. Greg, let's move on now. When we were talking at the very start of the interview, we were talking about education. We were talking about college education. And it seems to me the the victim in all of this, there are many victims, but possibly the biggest victims are kids and college kids themselves, because they're not being taught how to think. They're not being taught how to debate. They're not being taught to listen. They're not being taught how to develop as people. What is that doing, not only to that generation, but to the individual themselves? Oh, man. Yeah. I mean, my first book was called Unlearning Liberty. And the idea was that I felt like people were going into higher education in particular and coming out hostile to a lot of democratic uh, small D democratic norms. Um, when it comes to the mental health aspect of it, I think it's even worse because, and this is where like, I, I usually try to keep my cool. Um, but as far as something that actually just makes me flat out angry is, you know, when, when coddling came out, we still had people saying um, uh, the evidence just isn't there that there's a mental health crisis on, on, on campus. Um, and that, and in 2015, when we wrote the initial article, the, you know, the, the, the research wasn't out yet. Um, literally. But we were saying we were hearing of this on campus. Um, And then when the numbers finally came out, it was way, way worse than we thought. Um, So we wrote the book basically saying it's as if we are giving a generation of students the kind of advice that will make them anxious and depressed. Um, We know this for a fact now um, that that kids are hitting higher education with way higher rates of depression anxiety, mood disorders, self-harm, and suicide, even among like 10 to 14 year olds, which is like pains me to like talk about, like like the, the, the fact that you're talking about uh, a big spike in, in suicide rates for people that, uh, that young. So to know that for a fact and still teach students to basically effectively whisper in their ears, by the way, you can't really handle hearing things um, that are offensive to you. You will be permanently damaged by it. You won't recover. Um, and by the way, um, most of you, the overwhelming majority of you are both um, oppressors and depressed. There's not very much you can do about it other than feel bad and apologetic about yourself. Um, and, you know, again, and you're not very resilient um, and life is essentially, you know, everybody out, you know, your parents are essentially evil and uh, your other Americans are out to get you and everyone's secretly against you if they're not nominally against you. And it's like that is a messed up thing to tell anyone. But when you know that they're coming in with high rates of suicide, anxiety, and depression, um, that's just not acceptable by any stretch of the imagination. So, so I've definitely, I, I, I think a lot about ways to get out of the educational system we have in the U.S. Uh, in, 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 in radical steps. Like, because K through 12, 
Um, it's kind of weird because like the public education system in, in, uh, in America has its problems, but some of the worst ideology is coming out of the most elite, you know, prep schools. Uh, and meanwhile, higher education, I mean, even just on cost and bureaucratization alone, it's, it, it's insane. Like the idea that someone at Sarah Lawrence can say with a straight face that it's $70,000 a year and that covers only half the cost of educating a single student for a single year. And they really will say this. And it's like, that's nuts. That's a failure of the system. If you're saying that you can't educate a single student for less than $140,000 a year, that's just, that's just completely crazy. So there are lots of, uh, when I think about, you know, what we need to do um, with regards to higher education, I, I think every and all experiment uh, sh should be acceptable. And I don't think we should be massively subsidizing um, over bureaucratized, incredibly expensive um, country clubs. Yeah. Um, we've had many people on the show, you know, former professors or current professors, and there's a consensus amongst many of them that higher education is now beyond saving. There's just no way you can save it, and the only alternative is to build other uh, other colleges. Do you agree with that, or do you think we can still save this particular system? I think you. I think you need massive reforms. I, I think that. Um, it, it, so I run a nonprofit, and I would never get a donation if I had the kind of overhead that most of these schools have, and overhead defined as administrators and fundraisers. Um, because if you look at the budget of of Harvard of, of of any of these schools, you know, by different calculations, they have like 85 percent overhead. Um, a, a mass debureaucratization of universities um, should at least be tried, um, it, it, in my opinion, partially because those very same professors, you know, who came on your on your uh, on your show. You know, I think of uh, I think of, you know, our, our, our advisor, Steve Pinker. I think of my friend John Haidt. I think of Paul Bloom. I, I, there are there is great research and writing going on um, in higher education um, among some of the professors. Um, and most of the havoc comes from the administrators that maybe. Um, there would uh, some reforms could actually go a long way to fix it. That being said, I don't think there's going to be meaningful reform in the Yales and Harvards and Princetons as long as they think that they are the only game in town to getting your children into the going to sound like a Marxist again ruling class. Um, and what's funny is that if I can imagine so many different c competing systems that could actually tell because I'm an employer as well that that could tell employers that um, this is an incredibly bright, incredibly hardworking person. And guess what? Because you generally, if someone went to an elite college in the U.S., you can, you're, it's a more or less safe bet that they are pretty smart and were pretty hardworking, at least in high school. Um, like those, but that's it. You don't know if they understand statistics. You don't know if they understand history. You don't know if they understand law. You don't know if they understand economics, um, any of these basic things. So I think a lot about if you could start promising to some of these companies that care about making a profit that there's this alternative system that actually identifies the best, brightest, hardest working, most creative people in the country. Um, that's when you start scaring the Yales and Princetons and, um, and Harvards. Um, and only then do I think that they'll, they will start taking any meaningful action to get their acting gear. That's a really interesting point, Greg. And, and sticking with education, one of the things that people uh, on in this conversation often, I've heard at least said, is that the next generation, so Francis and I are like geriatric millennials, mm -hmm. and then there is the next generation, uh, whatever they're called, and then there's another generation coming below them. And the idea was, you know, every action causes a reaction, the pendulum swings, and this new generation coming through, oh, they love offensive humor, and they hate restrictions of speech, and, and they're all about, you know, the stuff that we'd all agree on. Is there any evidence for this? Um, I've heard this assertion as well. Uh, my understanding is there is um, there is evidence in the polling that there is a backlash effect going on. Um, I'll believe it when I see it, you know, essentially. Um, I do think, my, and my big fear, I wrote this 6,000 word article for Reason um, magazine, uh, talk, and I call it the, the, the second great age of political correctness. And my whole point there is, uh, like I was saying earlier, that, that, um, uh, that, 
this is exactly what happened last time in, in the late 90s, is it can't, we can't continue to have this kind of, you know, for lack of a better term, cancel culture, go on at its current rate forever, because eventually literally run out of people, or at least people <laughs> brave enough to uh, 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 to dissent. So there will absolutely have to be a turning back of the pendulum to some degree, and arguably that's already happening to at least some some modest degree. Um, but if we think that, oh, thank goodness that's over because we lost our minds for a couple of years there, um, that doesn't fix the problem. It still means that you have institutions that have no viewpoint diversity, they, um, that they are uh, wildly over-bureaucratized. All of these problems haven't actually been fixed. So I think that relying on the pendulum to swing back is not sufficient, even if it does swing back. And we shouldn't assume, just like, you, like you, you're skeptically pointing out, that it necessarily will. Mm-hmm. And Greg, why is it? And I've got my own theories of, on this, that the institutions most, pro, most prone to this always tend to be the wealthiest, always tend to be the most you know, prestigious, always tend to be the most privileged. I, I, I find it fascinating. Why do you think that is? Uh, Rob Henderson coined the term, I believe it was him. Um, he's an amazing thinker um, and way younger he's than He's coming me. on the show very soon, so we'll uh, ask him if it's a quote of his. Go ahead. Oh, terrific. Luxury beliefs. Um, right. that, that essentially, um, there's a class of belief that you can have that it, it improves you in esteem among people from your class. Um, that has no harm to you, but makes you seem more pure, more moral, more upstanding, but actually harms uh, other people in the in the society. And definitely, I saw a lot of luxury beliefs in my sort of journey up the class ladder uh, in the United States. It was it could be. Um, I remember in my human rights classes in uh, when I was at Stanford, it was. I, I realized that the theme seemed to be. Um, and I was always pointing this out, so they hated me for it. But it seemed to be that the professor's idea of what the good should look like was more important than helping actual people survive in many cases in the real world. And I was constantly like, hey, that sounds like you're just being puritanical about it has to be your way or the highway. And you're literally willing to kill people over that. So I think that there is, unfortunately, in the United States, we still have an idea that sort of like, you know, Lenin and, and Mao and Che Guevara are people to be uh, p- people to be celebrated when that's utterly offensive to, to, to the to the rest of the United States. But it is this idea of this uncompromising person of the people kind of thing. And I do think that never correcting that way of thinking about the world, um, you know, leads to even deeper problems, a, a re-romanticization of the old Soviet Union, for example, which I thought was the, the fact that the New York Times did in, in 2018 did a entire like year long thing talking about uh, the, the Bolshevik Revolution, including articles that talked about how sex was better during during the Soviets. I'm like, this this is unbelievable to me. Like this, this <laughs> is a, this is a monstrous, you know, like I like the lie. To, so we never fixed. So basically what I'm saying here is we never fixed the old problems that the ruling elite in the United States had. Um, and we're doing very little to, 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 to fix the new ones. But it is pretty normal, unfortunately, for uh, upper class people to just think of themselves as, to rationalize their belief that they're better than everybody else. They just do it in, now in a way that seems very self-flagellating, but it's really about those other rubes over there. Well, Greg, it's been an absolutely fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for joining us. We're about to ask you a couple of questions from our supporters that only they will get to see okay. on our locals uh, community. But before we do that, uh, we always have uh, one final question, which is always the same. What is the one thing we're not talking about as a society that we really should be? Um, I think it's about major reform to American higher education. Um, I mean, I, I said it, 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 it's one of the things I, I really hit all, all, all throughout. I think when um, some of the bills, you know, that, that are being passed in the United States, particularly as they apply to higher education, they're going after viewpoints, which is not OK. Like you, you can't in the U.S. under the First Amendment, nor should you be able to go after professors because of their viewpoint or books because of their viewpoint. But I do think that the insane hyper bureaucratization of universities is a scandal. I do think that that in a lot of these cases, like the, the like the situation where the Yale uh, law school students shouted down what was supposed to be sort of a kumbaya session between 
conservative uh, Supreme Court lawyers and liberal Supreme Court lawyers. Um, the the scandal there uh, in particular is not just that 100 students in a, in a class of 180 showed up to shout it down. It's that it was encouraged by administrators and those administrators are still employed by Yale. So I think that figuring out who the bad, like the fact we're not even firing the administrators who are causing this problem in the first place is something that everybody should be thinking about. This doesn't even seem to be on the radar. Greg, it's been an absolute pleasure. The, uh, the time has flown by. If people want to find you online, Greg, where is the best place to do that? Where is the best place to look for your books? Where is the best place to find out about FIRE? Uh, thefire.org. Um, we have a lot of great content coming out. We have, um, we actually have a surprisingly good TikTok game. Um, you know, <laughs> my, my, if you can spell my last name, you can find my books, um, you know, uh, pretty easily, but yeah, definitely check out thefire.org. We're doing a lot of public education at the moment on freedom of speech as a, not just a legal value, but as a, as a moral and philosophical value as well. Uh, Greg, thank you so much for coming on. We'll do the last couple of questions for our locals in the second. But in the meantime, thank you for being on the show. And thank you all for watching and listening. We'll see you very soon with another brilliant episode like this one or all show. All of them go out at 7 p.m. UK time. And for those of you who like your trigonometry, On The Go is also available as a podcast. Take care and see you soon, guys. The best treatment for anxiety and depression among young people is cognitive behavioral therapy for their parents. Before you go, consider joining our exclusive member feed. As a member, you'll get ad-free and extended interviews. Click the membership link in the podcast description or find the exclusive episodes link on your podcast listening app to join us.